Let's pray together. Father, uh, as we come to your word, uh, we ask that you will uh, make our minds sharp. Um, Don't let us be uh, uh, fuzzy in our thinking, Um, but we ask that you would uh, both clarify our minds, help us to think, help us to engage, but will you also uh, speak to us directly, personally, um, and powerfully? Uh, We're not here just to be here. We're here to meet with you. And so we ask that you would do that heavy lifting. Do whatever it takes uh, to get that done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So um, today, uh, we get to jump into one of the strangest stories in the whole Bible. Um, We're going to spend most of Lent, so most of the next six weeks, uh, in in the book of Jonah. So we read the first chapter. Uh, and, um, and I'm aware that, that all of us know of Jonah and the whale, right? Or Jonah and the big fish, whatever. And, and probably for most of us, that's the only bit of Jonah that we're aware of. We probably haven't hardly thought about the story since we were a little kid, if a, even, even that. Um, however, however, the more I look at the story of Jonah the more I realize that the the big fish, the whale thing, is like the tip of the iceberg of weirdness in this story. It is very, very, very odd. Uh, In fact, I don't even know, I I don't know any other book in the whole of the Bible that's quite like this book. It it just doesn't fit into any other category. So it's right in, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, it's in the section that we call the prophets, right in the middle of it. And it's about a prophet, so you think it might be like one of the other books of the prophets, but it's just not. It, it's not like any of the other books of the prophets. And it's a story, so you might think it's a lot like the historical books of the Old Testament. And, and Jonah's mentioned in 2 Kings, um, briefly. But it's not. It's not like any of the historical books. It doesn't fit into any genre. It's just strange. Part of it, when you read through it, the closer you look at it, part of it like reads like a Saturday Night Live sketch. It is very odd. And what part of the odd thing about it is that when you read it, everything's just kind of tipped upside down. So the prophet ends up a rebel. The pagans end up saints. Uh, a guy gets rescued by getting swallowed. And um, a fish, a worm, and cattle are very pivotal to the whole story. It's just absolutely bizarre. It's bonkers. Now, why should we read it? Because it's also brilliant. And here's what I mean by that. So last week, we finished Colossians. We were in uh, Colossians, which is a book in the New Testament for months and months. And the question that we were asking as we went through the book of Colossians was, what does it look like to be a a church that that lives out Jesus's vision for what a church should be? And that that question kind of drove the, the whole time we were in Colossians. However, it seems to me that that begs another question. And the other question is, see if you can identify with this, what happens when God's people don't live out God's vision at all? 
And here's why I think it's a really important question to ask. Um, one of the biggest obstacles, can you identify with this? One of the biggest obstacles that people have to trusting Jesus deeply is um, simply the failure of Jesus' people to represent him well. Right? So um, some of us here will be uh, uh, somewhat skeptical of Jesus, not sure if Jesus is a good idea or not. Um, for a lot of people who are in that position, one of the obstacles is just God's people, God's church, just are, are sometimes jerks. Not you. You know what I mean? And for a lot of Christians who have been Christians for a long time, that's also one of the biggest, biggest problems. The reality is that God's people, we call it the church, regularly fail to represent him well. And it seems to me we've got to ask the question, what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? And maybe more importantly, what does God do with that? How does God relate to his people when they reject him and when they run the other direction? Now, that's a question that sort of hangs over this bizarre story of Jonah. And it's a, in a bigger way, it's a story that, that, that hangs over the, all of Scripture. If you read through the big picture of Scripture, God's people, you know, there's nothing... Um, the, the Bible isn't idealistic about God's people. It's one of the most self-critical books I've ever read. The, the big story of the Bible includes God's people regularly running the other direction and doing terrible things. And if you zoom in on the portion of the Bible that we call the prophets, their fundamental message, almost all of them, is God's people, you need to turn back and repent. And when you look at Jonah, this little tiny four-chapter story... Jonah does both at the same time. Jonah is the story of one of God's people that runs the other direction from God and the fundamental, the, it, the story is calling Jonah and calling God's people back to him. And the main picture that emerges when you look at the story of Jonah is God's mercy to his very, very broken people. What does God's mercy look like when it slams into the reality of our brokenness? Well, you get a crazy story like Jonah. And that's why we're in Jonah for Lent. Um, during these next six weeks, we're going to be asking God to reach down into our souls, reach down into the soul of Emmanuel, and show us our brokenness, and show us our hypocrisy, and show us our sin, not just so that we can be discouraged when we look at it, but rather so that then God can show us what it looks like for his mercy to really uh, enter our lives, barrel into our lives. It's a severe kind of mercy, but it's a wonderful kind of mercy, and that's what we're going to be watching for when we go through Jonah. And besides all that, Jaws gets a cameo appearance. So that can't be bad. All right, let's look at the story, okay? Um, I think we're on page nine. So as we kind of walk through this first chapter of Jonah, I want you to keep two questions in mind. First of all, what is it that drives Jonah? What is it that drives him? And on the other hand, what explains God's action in this story? All right, verse one. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, get up, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, pause. Um, if you are uh, an Israelite 
a long time ago, and you're sitting down, and you open up the book of Jonah for the first time, and you read that first line, you know where you are. That is the way almost every single book of prophecy begins. The word of the Lord comes to a prophet, sending the prophet with a message. This is totally normal. And then you, it, it, you, you realize this is even going to be a better book, because um, the prophet the prophet's name, Jonah, son of Amittai, means dove, son of faithfulness. So that's looking good, right? And then you get to verse 2, and it's even better because you find out that this is going to be a prophecy against Nineveh. And Nineveh was just awful, right? I mean, they were notoriously cruel so that if there was ever a nasty pagan, awful enemy that deserves God's judgment. It's Nineveh. So if you're an ancient Israelite reading this, in the first two verses, you're thinking, fantastic, I get to settle in with the dove of faithfulness with a warm cup of fire and brimstone against God's enemies. This sounds great, right? But then verse 3 happens. And in verse 3, the dove of faithfulness flies away, right? Now, look where he goes, look where Jonah goes, and look what where Jonah is running from. Okay, first of all, uh, verse 3, but Jonah arose and fled to Tarshish. Where's Tarshish? The answer is nobody knows. Nobody knows where Tarshish is. Um, some scholars say India. Some scholars say uh, Spain, which is quite helpful. Um <laughs> I think it's, I think that's the point. Tarshish is like, you know, where's Tarshish? Well, find the middle of nowhere, take a left, go for a while, and it'll be on your right. Like, it's meant to be a long way from anywhere, anywhere knows about. But where, what's he running from? Verse three, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, not from Nineveh. He's not running from Nineveh. What's he running from? from the presence of the Lord. Now, that's very, very important because running from the presence of the Lord is one of the saddest and scariest scariest uh, phrases that you can possibly have in the Bible. Um, in the big picture of the Bible, Adam and Eve ran or hid from the presence of the Lord, right? All through the story of Israel, Israel is rejecting the presence of the Lord. And if we could just pause here for a moment and just, this is one of the best ways to understand the Christian concept of sin. Sin is not mildly naughty deeds that are rather fun. Okay? Those, give that up for Lent, but that's not sin. Okay? That's chocolate. Um, sin is when we look at God and we believe a terrible, terrible lie about him. We, we look at God and we say, God's not good. God's not my father. He's my tyrant. God's a jailer that wants to imprison me. God's not good. I am better off on my own. I'm better off calling my own shots. I'm running the other direction. And in the Bible, what we call sinful behaviors are merely eruptions of that deeper reality. They're, they're, they're what 
it looks like when you live out in response to that idea that God's not good and I'm better off on my own. And I suppose we should, all of us, ask the question, consider how influential that idea is in your life. God's not good? Not really. Not as good as people say he is. I can't really trust him, but I will trust myself. And we've almost never put it that way, but consider whether or not that is, how deep is that running in your life? All right. Go back to Jonah. So, the question is, now, Jonah's running away. What does God do? How does God respond? What does he do when he sees Jonah's rejection? And the answer is, God starts throwing things. Look at verse 4. He hurls a, a hurricane. He hurls a hurricane out on the sea. And as this hurricane hits the boat, it understandably, freaks out the sailors that are sailing with Jonah. And uh, first thing they do is they try to pray to their gods. That doesn't really work, so they get practical. And they start hurling, too. I mean throwing things. Um, they start throwing cargo. Out of, well, wait for the rest of the... Uh, in, in a few weeks, we'll get to the other kind, but that has to do with the fish. Anyways, they start throwing uh, cargo out of the boat, right? And that doesn't help either. So then what they do is they go down underneath the deck, and then they find out that the sweet little dove of faithfulness is asleep. He's useless. And they try to get him to pray, but he doesn't even pray. And, and then, fast forward just a little bit, they say, Jonah, what's going on here? Do you have a clue about what's going on? And Jonah says, yes, I've got a clue what's going on. And he fesses up, and he says, I'm a Hebrew I worship the Lord, I, I fear the Lord, and then they realize that, um, that he's actually their baggage. He's the baggage. And Jonah says, you're, you're probably going to have to throw me out of the boat. You're going to hurl me out of the boat. And the sailors don't want to do that, and so they pray. They actually, they're the first ones to pray to the Lord in this whole story. And they don't want to do it, but then they do. They throw him out. They throw him overboard, and three things happen the minute they throw him overboard. First, the sea calms. Secondly, the pagan sailors start worshiping the Lord. That's quite interesting. And then thirdly, Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. Now, this story is bonkers, but it's brilliant. And let me show you why by just asking a few questions. We, we've already answered the first one. Why does Jonah run? Why does Jonah reject God? Well, it's because he thought God's not good and I'm better off on my, on my own. In a couple weeks, we'll get more details about that. But here's the second question then. Where did that path lead Jonah? Jonah runs from God, but trace out the trajectory of where that decision ends. So Jonah runs from the presence of the Lord, and then if you look at it, he keeps on the imagery. Follow the imagery here. He keeps on going down, down, down. Verse 3, he goes down to the seaport, Joppa. Then he goes down into the ship. Then he goes, verse 5, down below deck. And then finally, he goes down into the sea and into the fish. And the imagery is important here because the imagery is from the presence of God down into death. 
And I say death because in chapter 2, the fish, Jonah calls the fish the belly of shale, the belly of death, almost the belly of hell. Adam and Eve hid from the presence of the Lord, and it ended in their death. All through the Bible, uh, Israel runs from God, and it ends up destroying them. And the same is true here for Jonah. Running from the Lord looks like freedom. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't think you're good. I'm running the other way. Tarshish is what freedom looks like, so he runs. But in the end, it's a trap. It ends up, in spite of everything he expects, it ends up being the shortest possible route to death. You ever, um, have you ever, you ever trapped rats before? I have some experience with this. I can tell you about it later. It ends up, it's quite easy. Because uh, it, it, if you, if you set out a trap, uh, with the right bait on it, um, it, really, all you're doing is you're just using the rat's desire. You're just giving the rat what the rat wants. And that's where Jonah's going. He's running from the presence of the Lord, and he's doing exactly what it is in the moment that he wants. The problem is that it leads down to death. And you've got to see that trajectory in order to adequately understand what it is that the Lord does. How does the Lord respond? Why does the Lord hurl a storm and summon the fish? I mean, it almost sounds like it's Poseidon really ticked off at Odysseus or something like that. Remember the question at the beginning. How does God respond when his people are unfaithful? And I suppose that God could have looked at Jonah running and, and said, well, all right, you know, Jonah, I, I wish um, you'd make a different decision, but you're an all-grown-up prophet, and so, um, okay, I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, you know, he, he could have done that. I would think that that would be a, a reasonable thing for God to do. The problem is that within the, the biblical understanding of things, and, and within Christian tradition, that's, that's what we call hell. Hell's more than this, but it is at least what it looks like when we reject God's presence, and in severing ourselves off from God's presence, we also sever ourselves off from love and joy and light and beauty and life itself in all of its deep ways. And so when the scriptures talk about hell, it means more than, but not less than, just what it looks like for that alienation from God's presence to be stretched out over eternal duration in increasing intensity. And it's a horrible picture. And here in the book of Jonah, God makes a different choice. Instead of just saying, all right, have it your way, he says, no, 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 I'm going to pursue you, Jonah. I'm going to chase you, Jonah. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find you, Jonah. Do you remember in the New Testament, um, Jesus talks about leaving the 99 sheep and seeking after the one sheep that's gotten lost. This is what he's doing here. And it is all of it mercy. Now, admittedly, it's not warm, fuzzy mercy. It's what C.S. Lewis calls a severe mercy. 
So he throws the hurricane after Jonah in part to wake Jonah up so that he sees that it is futile to run, run from God. And Jonah gets that message. But then he provides the fish. And the fish does two things at the same time. The fish, in one, in one way, gives Jonah a taste of where his path is leading. It's a taste of death. And it doesn't sound like mercy, but it is mercy, because Jonah is literally asleep, but he's figuratively asleep. He's got to wake up to reality. He needs to wake up. And in the belly of the fish, and we'll see this next week, but we read it earlier, intermingled with our singing. In the belly of the fish, he begins to realize that what he had previously believed was a lie, that he was not better off on his own, that on his own leads him to a place like this, and it's in the belly of the fish. That's the moment when he finally begins to see that God is good, despite all of his previous conceptions. In a remarkable way, he had never tasted God's goodness until he's in the belly of the fish. He had never tasted God's goodness until he began to taste a little bit of the bitterness of death. And so the Lord allows him to taste a bit of it so that it can wake him up to taste the sweetness of the Lord's presence. And like I said at the beginning, the whole story of the Bible is kind of encapsulated here because you could tell the whole story of the Bible, ready? By saying God pursues his enemies to rescue them from death and he pursues them with a severe mercy. You could sum up the whole Bible that way. In fact, you could sum up the ministry of Jesus that way. You remember Jesus? We just said he's fully God. But yet Jesus, the Son of God, chose to come down. A little like Jonah, but a lot not like Jonah. To become a servant. And he became a servant that was obedient to the point of death. And he went, so to speak, down upon the cross and down into the tomb, and he was swallowed by death. And that was the Lord's severe mercy. In fact, it was mercy that was so strong that, in a remarkable way, God in Christ took his severity upon himself so that mercy and severity met together and mingles perfectly at the cross of Christ. And I know that sounds bizarre and crazy, but think of it this way. Jesus died, and when he died, he was tasting death so that we don't have to. He was entering hell so that we don't have to. He was being swallowed by sin so that we don't have to. And he spent three days in the tomb just like Jonah spent three days in the fish. And he did all of that so that doves of faithfulness, doves of unfaithfulness like me, can be released from ourselves and be brought back into his presence. It's the severe mercy. And that's how the Lord deals with his unfaithful people. Now, this is the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent is designed to help us prepare for spiritual renewal. And this story helps us. If you want to prepare for spiritual renewal, you have to see at least three things, and then we'll be done. 
first, you have to see where it is that you are believing that lie that Jonah believed, that God's not good and that I'm better off by myself. And you've got to ask, how influential is that idea in your mind and in your heart? And sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that and really measure that. So what you can do is kind of reverse engineer it. So take an area of your life where you know you're out of sync with God's will, out of sync with obedience, and take those behaviors and then ask the question, why, what's underneath those behaviors? Is there a way in which in that sphere of my life, I'm still believing that God's not good and I'm better off on my own? The path to spiritual renewal begins by seeing that reality. But then secondly, you've got to see the Lord's mercy in pursuing you. And the evidence of the Lord's mercy in pursuing you might be as simple as the fact that you're here. And you're like, man, why am I here? Well, And on the other hand, the evidence that the Lord is pursuing you might be the fact that right now you're beginning to taste the bitterness of running from God. Don't conclude that that, if you, that's what you're tasting, don't conclude that that means that God actually isn't good. Rather, it's not that God's cruel. It's that God does not deal in fantasy. He's deeply committed to reality. But then the last thing that you have to see is this. Friends, the Lord's mercy is severe, but it doesn't stay there. Do you remember this, the hymn, Amazing Grace? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Do you remember the other verse? One of the other verses? It was grace that taught my heart to fear, but it was grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. The Lord's severe mercy leads us Sometimes to fear, to fear the darkness and to fear God, but only so that then he can come and relieve those fears so that he can flood us with his kindness and his love. That's where the Lord wants to take you. And that's what we're going to pick up next week. Amen? Amen.